Would anybody like to include people in our prayers? Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself in Mass, for your presence with us, uh, most especially here at the outset of Lent. What a great gift to us to, to enter into Lent knowing um, that, that we participate with each other, that, that we are prayed for by the mystical body, millions of people that we don't know, and that we pray for them. Um, we ask a special blessing for the souls in purgatory, um, for all those who are uh, <coughs> working to purify themselves um, so that they can be images like you, because that's not how we leave our world. What, whatever goodness we have, um, we shall see him as he is um, when we're like him. Um, for all those who are trying to be more like you, um, to become perfect in ways that they didn't while they were here, we ask a special grace. Speed them on their way. Ask for a special blessing on John Meehan. Watch over him. Um, if he's not to recover from this cancer um, and all the pain that he's experiencing, whatever sorrows, um, let him know the joy of being with you, trusting in you. Um, let it be so for all of us who have loved ones who are struggling or who are ill. Um, I ask a special blessing on all of us, particularly here, um, that we give ourselves completely to the repentance that you called us to. You call us to repent because we need it. All of us strengthen us in our efforts so that in putting our sins away, we can become more and more like you and bring you to all that we do, particularly with each other. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. This is... I'm going to come to this revelation that I um, had shortly, but I want to, I want to lead up to it. Um, just a quick, quick um, um, flyby um, view at our, some of the readings we did last week or the last couple of weeks. Um, we, we read the scene in which Ishmael has what I was calling his second or third peripatia when he's squeezing the spermaceti and finds himself holding hands with the men next to him and looking into their eyes lovingly and tenderly. They're probably looking at him like he's an idiot. Um, but um, clearly, um, it's, it, it's a moment in which he recognizes he's changing because he says he let go of the quest completely. I've been suggesting all along that that in some ways he's been doing it since the quarterdeck scene because there's no way he could have um, given us all those meditations on, on the whale, the skin, the spouts, the eyes, the forehead, the tr whatever he did, he, he turned his mind on things 
in such a way that he, he brought a whole world into focus for us. He was giving us various points of view and the way people look at things and then offered his own and, and in a way that I suggested is helping us to trust him as a reader so that when we get to the end, we won't blow off what happens, that this story is real, that it speaks to us, it has something to say to us. If he's a Jonah figure, then there's some sense in which Melville believes that what he's bringing to us is from God, that we need to take this seriously. If we, if we blow it off the way people do, we, the, remember, remember in the Odyssey, those of you who are here, remember the, the gods kept appearing to the suitors over and over and over and over again, and the suitors never listened. How well, how well do we listen to the things that come to us around us? So we looked at the squeeze of the hand. Um, I briefly mentioned the doubloon. We didn't go into it, and sadly, we're not going to go into it. It's a chapter that we should go into. It's that scene in which most, most of the major figures go up to the mast and look at the doubloon, and remember it's got those three mountains with um, different um, tops, symbol, symbolic tops, and they're all situated at a certain point in the zodiac, with the sun coming in at a certain place. And every one of them reads that doubloon differently. And um, it's an interesting scene in lots of ways, and, I, and it's interesting that it comes when it does. The doubloon occurs in chapter 99. A hundred, I think, is going to be a very important chapter. I think, I, it's hard for me to believe that Melville would not have been aware that, of the number a hundred. It's 99, and in some ways we can, we can say it's preparing us for the crisis. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute, because the crisis will unfold. It, it, it will be set in motion just about now. So the, but even if that's not so, the doubloon chapter is important for lots of reasons. What, what we learn from it is that people tend to read for their own ideas. They, they bring to the world what's inside of them, which according to our understanding is very, is very Old Testament. Um, that there is this tendency in all of us to justify ourselves. And one of the ways in which we do that is by reading things to get back what we believe in. Right? If we're Islam, we're going to look at the world in a certain way to confirm our beliefs. If we're Catholics, same thing. So what we see is people tend to read for their own ideas. They, they find in the world what they want to find. They will make the world over in their image. It's a very Jewish thing in the desert and all the way through the Old Testament. Christ came to shatter that in some ways, we can say. Another interesting um, point about that chapter is that once Stubb comes to it, he steps back and reports what others are coming to. So now stop and think about this. The, the chapter is presented from Ishmael's point of view, right? He's recalling it. At one point, Stubb comes in and he's reporting what happens according to his point of view. So we've got a frame within a frame, yeah? So Melville is consciously asking us to be aware of how often things come to us through others. Um, remember, we've been saying, I've been saying for several weeks that one of the things that Melville's doing is calling our attention to reading, that so often people represent things believing that they're absolutely right, that the way they see things is the right way. And he puts different points of view together 
to set them off against each other so they speak to each other. It's like a dialogue. And then we'll draw his conclusions. You know he tends to be facetious and to laugh at them because there's something a little bit wrong with so many of them. And most of all, the people who think they're right, you know, that they're the way of looking at things. And so again and again and again, he's calling us, he's calling, he's making us be aware of how we perceive the world. And I suggested last week that he's really encouraging a kind of Catholic, eclectic way that, that it's only when we bring lots of points together that we will learn to see more wholly what's there. That too often we see in part. Christ says that, Paul says that, we see in part. It's in the glass darkly. Um, let's see, I think that was... I don't think we looked at the, at the GAM involving the Enderby, and I don't want to do it tonight. I'm going to mention it in a few works. We looked at the Triworks chapter, in which Ishmael describes that moment when he's at the helm and he has this, this um, nightmarish vision. It's, it's a Walpurgis night. It's a devilish. It's the night before Halloween. It's that kind of nightmarish with spooks and goblins, and except here it's demonic. When he looks at the harpooners, um, with their teeth glittering in the light and, um, and the flames shooting into the evening, the black sky, um, and his description of the ship as, as on fire rushing to hell. Those are, that's a literal description. So for the first time since the quarter deck scene, we see the, the underworld, that, that there is something demonic about this enterprise. There it comes to the surface. And it's, it's so important um, that he, he, he himself becomes turned around by the vision. It has such an effect on him. So the fact that he was physically turned in some ways suggests how important it is um, for him and, and the endeavor. He has to completely turn himself around or the ship would have crashed. Um, I think those were some of the more major ones. Um, one of the major questions that I asked last week that I want to come to in a few minutes was this question of where Ahab got his beliefs. Um, it's, a, it's been a pressing question for me every time I've taught the book and something happened this week I'm going to share with you in a, in a few minutes. But um, I, I wanted for a, a moment to, to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago with the catechism. And I don't want to labor that. We're not going to go there. but. This is going to be a, a slight digression for this reason. Um, it, it, it seems to me that it's really important to, to put this whole question that I put to you weeks and weeks ago about, can a, a Christian community maintain its faith and prevent itself from declining into just a moral code without the sacraments? And um, it, because it seems to me Melville's showing that it can't. He's not Catholic. I don't believe he is, although I have some thoughts to offer on that when we finish up the book. What he's doing is showing this hypocrisy in, in Christianity it's, as it's lived in New England, America. Um, and I, I took that time off to look at the Eucharist to, to, to give people a sense of what's really at stake here in the Eucharist because so often it's misunderstood. Um, 
And I, I want to follow that up for a moment to, to try to give a balance to the presentation I gave. So I want to go back for just a few minutes. I want to make this really short, and I want to recall some things that we covered when we did Dante together. And that is the corruption of the Catholic Church, because um, America was founded as um, at, a, at a moment when Protestants and Catholics were killing each other in Germany and France. The religious wars were going on. The states were turning Protestant. Um, um, the Catholic Europe as we, as we knew it, or that it existed at one point, is in collapse. So America is growing out of a period in which the, the Reformation was taking hold and the corruptions in the church were being answered. And I want, to, I want to put that out here because we live comfortably several hundred years away from that, and I've been very critical of, I mean, I've, I've constantly been setting the two faiths against each other to the disadvantage of the Protestant. I mean, the, the whole thing about the Eucharist was to try to put that in perspective. I want to try to recover some balance here because this is a, this comes out of the adult catechetical program, so I want to, I want to try to do as much justice as I can. This is really important to me because I think, because of what I believe Melville's doing. So I want to take just a minute to remind people of some of the things that we saw when we did Dante. Remember, when we did Dante, um, Florence was founded as the first burger com commune, the first commercial republic in the West on the day that Dante was born. When we read the Divine Comedy, we saw it as a piece of prophecy on the nature of the commercial republic. Everything about it is defined in commercial terms. The wars between church and state and the struggle to gain independence from each other and the power struggles. Um, so I want to go back to that moment and just very quickly come forward to put into perspective what's going on in America because I want to come to that in a moment. I want, I want to remind everybody. We're looking at a Protestant world, but I want to look at the context from which it came. Okay, just very briefly. Um, 1075 to 1122 was the investiture con controversy. You remember that at that time, kings had the power to invest clergy. Lands were being bought and sold by the church. The church was already becoming wealthy. But kings acquired power that they shouldn't have had. Okay, that was one of the things Dante was dealing with. Um, the emperor had the right to invest bishops, and that meant bishops and priests were dependent on the state. Okay? And it encouraged people to buy and sell offices, indulgences, properties, invest in marriages. Um, and, and remember um, that the pope at that time excommunicated Henry IV um, because he, he, he refused to comply with the Pope at that time. Philip the Fair um, wanted to arrest a bishop and Boniface, you all remember where Boniface ends up in Dante's Divine Comedy, I hope you all remember that. Boniface was the Pope he hated most and he was in hell, or remember they were waiting for him in hell. Um, remember, hell is full of Catholics <laughs> and, and there's no shortage of popes in, in hell. Um, 
Um, Philip wanted to arrest a bishop for heresy. How can a king imprison a bishop for religious beliefs? He's a king. It's the temporal power. It's not, it's not remember, Christ had given to Caesar what Caesar given to God's what's gone. And um, Philip sent forces to Anagni to capture Boniface and actually arrested him. That was a crushing blow for Boniface. I think it actually led to his death. He was so humiliated by it. Shortly after that, um, because of Philip's power in the church, a French bishop was elected pope. And that's when the papacy moved to France. And there's that long period of more than 70 years when we have what the church calls the Babylonian captivity, that the seat of authority for the church moved from Rome to France, which meant it was under the temporal power directly, explicitly, in that move. So there are three periods that line up with each other. The Babylonian captivity, that's from 1305 to 1378. The great schism that followed it, 1378 to 1411, in which the, the French and Roman churches were in conflict with each other about who should become pope and where the seat of power was. So there was still a long division, even after the Babylonian captivity was rectified. And then the Italian papacy from 14 territorial papacy when the, um, the seat of Peter was passed on through family lines and seated in Rome. And that's a period when the church becomes even more corrupt, as you can imagine, um, between about 1417, 1517. The Black Death occurs in 1348, um, 50. Um, during this period of what's called the Italian Territorial Papacy, when the seed is passed on through dynasties, dynastic families, that's the period when the Borgias come into power, that family, that had become so corrupt. Alexander VI um, was accused of crimes, adultery, incest, simony, theft, bribery. I think he had five illegitimate kids. He had you know, mistresses. That was passed on. It, it led to um, the, the great revolts within the church, the disgust that the church felt for things like that. Um, so now think about that. That's, that's 16th century. That's early 16th century. We're close to America's founding. So Europe, and, and Luther is writing 1517, that's when he posts his theses, about the, the sell of indulgences, the corruption within the church. So Europe has been staggering under these religious wars, all these revolutions. New communes are developing. The middle class is emerging. The printing press has developed. So printing materials are made available to the masses. So more and more people are reading and more and more people, ordinary people, are thinking independently because they can make arguments of their own right now. Because things are published and, and, and um, propagated. So, um, Luther posts his theses in 1517. The religious wars um, uh, begin. Henry breaks off from Rome. Henry VIII um, breaks off from Rome and makes himself the supreme head of the Church of England. And he's quite clear in that document that he, he claims authority to decide on issues that are religious. 
doctrinal issues. So what he does is bring the church under the authority, I think it's called Caesaropapism, that the church and state become welded together, that they're co-equal in power. Um, the Copernican Revolution takes place mid-16th century. That in itself encouraged people to question authority because the basis of knowledge was suddenly broken open. It was questioned. It, the things that they once believed no longer held anymore. Um, and at this time, Calvin writes his institutes. Calvin and Luther are friends with each other. They meet because they, both of them are trying to persuade Protestant leaders to get power. Um, they're in agreement on reform in some respects and not in others. They disagree fundamentally on the Eucharist, as you know, because we talked about that. Luther believes in consubstantiation. Calvin believed that there should be no Eucharist, no priesthood. Okay, and I want to I want to come to that because this is so vital to what we're doing. It's just stunning me when I put this stuff together. That's the state of Europe. It's in collapse. Political structures are changing. Systems of knowledge are undergoing change. Um, our understanding of authority is radically changed. This is when Shakespeare is writing too. Shakespeare and Dante's Dante's really at the the beginning of this whole movement towards modernity. But people are aware of the, of the failings of the Catholic Church, and it, 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 what it does is just reinforce that their, their beliefs that something's wrong, particularly if the church has been aligned with sources of power, because the bishoprics, the priests, the monasteries, you know, they've all been allied with the kings in some ways. That was Catholic Europe. It was United Catholic Europe 100 years before. Right now it's in collapse. So that's the background, okay? There's corruption everywhere. Priests have mistresses. They own property. They buy and sell indulgences. Rome is um, fat on wealth, truly. Um, so what it does is encourage people who don't think about these things to be convinced that their reform movements are well-founded because they're dealing with a world in collapse. Out of that background emerges these groups, these, these groups in, in England who called themselves Puritans. They, they were attacked by the crown because they, they thought that the, Henry's reforms didn't go far enough. So um, they separated out, they were persecuted, the Puritans and the Catholics were both persecuted. And um, at the same time, there was a group that formed itself called separatists, who were generally formed by Calvin. Um, Calvin, Calvin is the more, the, far more than Luther. Calvin is the one figure who's behind the, the reform movements and the separatist movements. The Puritans believed that the Anglican Church was the true church. This is really important. The Puritans believed that the Anglican Church was the true church, but that their reform had not gone far enough. The separatists believed that the Anglicans were not the pure church. And they were doing everything, they, and both the Puritans and the separatists were together in fighting Catholicism because they saw Catholicism as the corrupted church. That the Anglican church had, had, in its movements to reform had moved in the right direction. The separatists thought not far enough. Those two groups went to the Netherlands to found a colony using Calvin as a model. Calvin, when he went from France to um, Geneva, 
was invited to preach there and was asked to leave because his doctrines were so radical. A year later, he was invited back and he stayed. And that's when he wrote the Institutes, which became a major book all over Europe. So Calvin's influence at this point is, is tremendous. He's behind the separatists, the Puritan movements, the, the, the groups who go to the Netherlands. When things didn't work out in the Netherlands because people were beginning to be aware that their children would grow up and, and they would lose their English heritage, but they couldn't go back to England because they believed that England was not the true church anymore. They couldn't stay in the Netherlands. It wasn't their home. They felt out of place. They wanted to go to the New World to, to found a new world. So those two groups, the Puritans and the Separatists, took off for America. And that's the founding in the North as we know it. If you know anything about it, you know that the, that the founding in the South, I think it was um, 1607, 1607, I think it was 1607, the Jamestown founding was a plantation founding, it was commercial. The two foundings, North and South, were radically different. The North was religious, think about that, and the South was um, economic. How inverted that becomes in time. The North is, is, becomes an industrial nation, and the South is the Bible Belt. I mean, it's just funny how that would work out in time. But those two groups come here, and they immediately establish colonies and immediately begin to break apart because the principles of not wanting to be under a unified body, the Catholic Church, each community to have their own independence, began to set up rules and when they began to quarrel with each other, they began to break off and immediately begins to fragment. So they form independent communities. Calvin is behind all of them. They're either Presbyterian, which is a direct fruit of his work from Scotland, or Congregationalist, which means each congregation has its own independent authority. That's the world that we look at when we open the pages of Moby Dick. That is a thoroughly fundamental congregational Presbyterian world. It's a reaction against a collapsing Catholic Europe, and it's struggling. They're forming theocracies. If people don't follow these rules, they're going to be excommunicated. There are no ministers, no sacraments, they make scripture largely everything, the reading of the Bible. Right. Okay? That's the world that Melville is showing us. Okay? Is that clear? That's just a, I know that's a rough thumbnail sketch, but it's, it's I think in general outlines, it's pretty accurate, okay? Um, now, why is this important? Because one of the questions that I've been asking is, where did get Ahab get his beliefs? And I'm, I want to I want to go through some passages today, um, because of some startling revelations that I've had. But anyway, that's just a, just a brief overview. But it, I think it's important to hold on to that because that's we since the beginning I've made the point. The opening chapters are a critique of a failed Christianity. The Christianity that we're looking at takes that nature. It's a Renaissance Reformation founding in spirit in doctrine. And the, the guiding figure, the, 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 the central inspiring figure for their way of life is Calvin. Some Luther, but largely Calvin. Okay. Now hold on to that because that's going to almost mean everything. Now let me give you, these are... These are 
the basic Calvinistic beliefs. This is reductive. It's just putting it to its principles, but it's important for you to, to hold on to these. Um, the, the central tenets defining the, the, the Christian communities in our founding, as we as a people, that's our founding, were these. People put this under the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. The, the T, the first letter, stands for total depravity. The effects of the fall were complete, according to Calvin. You know that as Catholics we don't believe that. We believe that man was wounded, and this is, going to, this is so directly going to reflect on Ahab in a minute, that man became totally depraved, that the fall was complete, both in nature and in man. Um, it's interesting, if you, it's really funny, if, um, if you read Milton, if you were to read Milton at one point after the fall takes place, I think it's in book 10, Milton's describing the effects of the fall after Adam and Eve had eaten of the apple and they, they disobey God and break. There's this description that Mil, Milton has of the earth turning on its axis. And his description of that is, is, is that um, the effects of that turn fouled everything, absolutely everything. And he describes the foulness and the pestilence and the ugliness that's, that's one of the leftover effects, one of the, one of the effects of the fall. When, if you were reading Dante going up the, of the Purgatorio, when Dante describes the land, there's a point in the Purgatorio, no, sorry, I think it's the Purgatorio. Maybe in the Paradiso, I think it's in the Purgatorio, where he's describing the, the Earth's axis. And Dante's description of that axis was one of the, designs of God in order to make the earth temperate. Because if he, had, if he had straightened it out, all of the heat would have gone into the southern atmosphere and left us in a mess. So Dante's view of our nature is that it's good, moderate, it's got extremes at the poles, but by and large, it's beautiful, it's temperament, it's produced all this beauty. So you get two radically different views of nature, Milton and Dante. Book 10 is when Milton says, all corrupt all corrupt. Dante says there's this extraordinary glory to what God did in creation. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. Now this is really important. Once man has been chosen, he's chosen. That's true for those who are predestined to damnation. That's true for those who are predestined to heaven. L, the third, T-U-L, limited atonement. Particular redemption, um, it just implies that the sins of the elect were atoned for by Jesus' death. It doesn't apply to those who were damned um, before they were born. I, irresistible grace, efficacious grace, um, It just simply means if somebody's saved, he's saved. This is stunning. I've got to come back to this in a, in a second. And P, the perseverance of the saints. One of the ways in which P 
people know they're among the saved is their perseverance. They stay with the struggle you know, to be holy. If they didn't persevere, it would be taken as evidence that they're not among the elect. Now, the, the general temper of Calvin led to these, these what, what are taken to be the four marks of Calvinism, historic Calvinism, historically, after he wrote the Institutes. These are the four marks. A hatred of the flesh. Calvin was very distrust, distrustful of the body and the flesh. That is, in, that is inbred in the Puritan Protestant character. Contempt for natural law. And you remember, according to the Catholic, natural law is descended from divine law. There is this natural law in the world that's a product of God's ordering, having ordered the world. It's rooted in scripture, or, or in, it's actually it's rooted in scripture and then ultimately in divine law, God's own law himself. So, for example, when we opposed slavery in the 19th century, we were opposing it because it was against, in, in the natural order, it was against God's law. The, the positive laws which were protecting slavery were contrary to natural law, what Paul calls these laws that are written in our heart, that there are certain things in us that are naturally good and certain things that are bad, but the root of them is God's law, eternal law, which means there's this intrinsic link between God's reason and man's reason. Calvin hated that. He distrusted natural law. He distrusted reason even though he was a man of, I mean, who used his reason in everything he did, and his belief in total depravity. I want to just remind you of this one thing, this notion of irresistible grace. Um, Calvin believed that once a person was saved, he was saved, finally, completely, was over. There's no question about it. We believe that we can fall off I mean, we can fall out of grace um, any time. Um, Calvin did not believe in free will. Obviously, if he believed these doctrines, he couldn't believe in it. He didn't. This is the interesting thing. He one of the ways in which he tried to protect God's sovereignty, what he called absolute sovereignty, this is really, really important. What Calvin was attempting to do, like Arius, was protect God's sovereignty. He believed, that's, why he, that's partly why he came to those conclusions that he did about predestination. If somebody could do something to sin and overthrow God's sovereignty, it, it, it calls into question God's sovereignty. So the notion of irresistible sovereignty was really important because what he was saying basically was that, um, that nothing man does can frustrate God's will. That's why you can have a, a mistress and be in sin and still be among the saved. Because your belief is that God's will is absolute. You're going to be saved. So it's irresistible grace. Um, so he believed that even if a man was in sin and he was among the elect, that ultimately that grace could not be overthrown, could not be resisted. Man could not frustrate it. It was one of his arguments to show that God's sovereignty was absolute. Okay. Now I want you to hold on to these beliefs, these, this just sort of thumbnail sketch of what's going on with Calvin. 
because it seems to me it helps explain what, what Ahab is dealing with here. And I hope, I hope you're beginning to make connections now before we get to them, but I just wanted to put those things out, okay? Um, now, remember, if, if you're not going to hold on to anything else, hold on to these two. He believed in irresistible grace that no matter what a man did, it could not frustrate God's will. If he sinned, he could not do it because that, that seems to imply God does not have an absolute will. And the second is total depravity. That man's totally depraved. He can do nothing good on his own. He has no free will. Reason is corrupt. Okay. Now these are the tenets, these are the basic tenets that, that inspired the reform movements and that led, that, that gave life and vitality to the group that came here who were willing to risk their lives to leave everything behind, come to America and, and practice religious freedom because they could not practice these beliefs in England Anglican was Anglican, and if you didn't believe, I mean, you know that, when after Henry had separated, you either followed the Anglican church or you're going to be persecuted. You had no vote, you had no property. Priests, priests couldn't tell masses. The Puritans couldn't practice their beliefs. That's why they fled. So that's the nature of our founding. Okay? Those are the tenets that sustain it. Okay? Now that's 1620. I mean, the, half the, the, that original Mayflower group was wiped out from sickness and health, and business transaction, business groups came back and forth that, that actually put the early Puritans in compromised positions because they didn't want to compromise their religious um, autonomy. But business groups came over, they wanted to make trade because America was going to be a center of trade and wealth going back to the old world. And So gradually over time, in the next hundred years, these, these communities began to flourish became sustaining and um, continued to practice their, their beliefs even though they began to fragment among themselves because they disagreed. The Congregationalist groups were independent and had radical disagreements with each other about what was going to be done and how it was going to be done. Okay? Okay. Now, two things before we look at the books. Um, any questions on that? I know that's a it's it's awfully general, but yeah. So, big surprise. How, how can a, a body of people have the spirit to start a new nation if they believe in irrevocable damnation? Explain how they can't. <laughs> what what would be what would be your drive? I mean, if, if you were among, wait, just, I just. Mean, and I, I'll, I'll reason I ask this is, you know, I, I, I mentioned I grew up in a, in a, in a long line of Baptist yeah, families. Yeah. And I don't, I don't ever remember there being a, a, an overall belief that you have no free will. Yeah. That, you know, I do, I do remember very well the belief that once you were saved, you were saved. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I was, Baptized. I mean, that was yep. that was the yep. belief that if yep. you're saved, you're saved. Yep. But I don't ever recall this. You know, either you're you're damned or you're saved. Right. And you can never. Right. You can never fix yeah. that, whatever yeah. it is. And I and I'm just thinking back. I mean, if if I believe that, you know, why would I 
Why would I leave Europe, come over here, put up with everything the founding fathers did? Yeah, hold on. I, I really, I, what I want to do is ask you to hold on to that second no thought because God, it, it, it left me shaken, and I, particularly here, and I, I want to come to this in a minute. Um, but let me try to answer the first question you put, just generally, because I, I think I have already, but I don't think it would have made much sense because we hadn't done this. But remember, this is 19th century. The, the Protestant New England world is in collapse. The people who are believers no longer hold on to the beliefs that they held then. So while it was a source of tremendous energy, remember the description of um, Bildad and Pil or Peleg and Bildad. They had this fierce intensity to conquer nature that they brought that religious fervor to what they did. Um, so there were these ironies that Melville's calling to mind for us that that, they're, that they were Quakers, um, pacifists in some ways, but they had this fierce desire to conquer. So the early settlers brought this fierce determination to, to live out their beliefs because at home they couldn't. But over time, the, as, the, as the communities became more wealthy and self-supporting, and, and this is going to telescope time tremendously because we know it's true today. I mean, look, look at America today. I mean, that's why I said this is us early on, because what we find in all these people is that comfort and wealth and security, Mrs. Hussey wants, you know, to have a clean house and a, that we're already seeing the same, the things that we've grown up with. So that one of the questions I think we should be asking ourselves, how much fervor do modern Christians have in living out their faith? How, how much have they accommodated to a materialistic world with our wealth and comfort? Islam's on the rise. Are we answering it? That, that, in one respect, that's a deadly, deadly enemy. The, um, America as a Christian nation has accommodated for the last 200 years in a way that's, that, that has led some people to question whether our faith is real. We're not a Christian nation anymore, whether our faith is really strong or not. So. So I, I mean, the, the short answer to what you, what you just asked is that Suzanne and I went to the Carolinas a couple of years ago when we were looking for, to move, because I really wanted to get into a, a more agrarian setting. We'd lived in, we'd raised our kids in California, and we spent five years in New Hampshire and loved it. It was a first experience for me in a relative country setting, and I just, I just loved it. Um, the, the young man who took us around was Presbyterian. And when I learned that in the car, I can remember asking him, I said, what do you, you know, how do you, how do you deal with this notion of predestination in Calvin? And he said, we don't even deal with it anymore. I mean, the truth of the matter is, most fundamentalists continue to live out beliefs like anybody raised that way, when the central tenets that form those beliefs no longer exist and they don't believe them. We, we have become comfortable mentally. I mean, I mean how, many people, how many people deal with metaphysical issues anyway? I mean, that go to the roots of them. Just ordinary human beings in America. Very few. I mean, I, I, I'm more and more amazed that Melville could have done this. For, his whole thing is metaphysical. He's going to the roots of everything. What I'm going to suggest in a minute is, is that what he's doing is going to the roots of Calvin in a stunning way, but I, I want to hold off because I, this is such an overpowering thing to me that I want to, I want to take it on by itself. But the short answer to that is that in time, because they believed they were among the elect, 
The fact that they left their home was proof of it, that they had the courage to risk their lives for this founding, to live their beliefs. You know, if you look at the first several, um, the, the Bradford, one of the early governors, Winthrop later, these great, vital, fierce men, full of convictions that gathered communities around them and gave them belief, you know, that, that made it possible for them to survive all these difficulties. Um, but as they got settled, more and more settled, you know, and, and, and the nation developed and became more political than we had our, you know, rebellion against England. And I mean, lots is happening in, in you know, 250 years, so. Um, let me look at the, the, the um, plot for a second, very, very quickly. We've talked about the, the critique on land, the culture, the Christian culture, that it, that, it, that, it, that it has declined into a moral code. There is no sacramental life, there is no holiness. How can there be? Sacraments aren't there. It's a rationalized um, conception of Christianity. When they go out to sea, we saw that Melville's, through Ishmael, is looking at metaphysical realities. That's what the sea is. And remember what we see, and it's really interesting that, that there are two realities in tension with each other, Ahab's, Ishmael's. Ahab wants to get at the evil behind this wound. Ishmael is open to everything. I mean, there's not a chapter in which he's not exploring things. Ishmael is a, is a person receptive. He's full of wonder. He wants to know. He questions things. He looks at things. He puts them together. So we've got two radically opposed ways of dealing with the world. One that's fanatically driven, convinced that he's right and will not stop, and one who's open, full of wonder, presenting the same. I called these chapters the setup. And you remember why. Because I suggested that if you look at what he's doing, he's telling all these war, whale stories and um, the fabulous, the classical, the Greek, the Persian. I mean, he's putting all of this stuff together to help us to see that there is this extraordinary richness to being. I, I, I said, he's teaching us to recover um, a sense of the analogies of being, that things are interconnected. Because we live, in a, we live in a one-dimensional abstract world. The sciences tend to encourage us to live in abstractions, geometric, um, quantitative abstractions, mathematical, removed from concrete reality. He's trying to get us back. Remember poetry, the whole aim of poetry is to, the really great poets, so it's to take us there. So these were all setups to prepare us for this ending. He gives us all these stories um, because we're going to have to deal with something so improbable at the end that we either say, this is, this is a huge fish story, this is ridiculous, who could believe this? Or we have to, we, and this, it's just it's amazing, we have to deal with the Jonah story in the Bible, except now we're gonna have to deal with it through Melville. Was Jonah really swallowed by a whale? Did this really happen to Ishmael? I mean, you know, we're left with those questions. Well, how are we gonna read this at the end? What are we gonna do with it? What happens here is um, the crisis is forming. And I think it begins around this doubloon um, <coughs> chapter, and I want to lay that out just for a minute. 
All of this is a preparation for the denouement, the unraveling, because you know, once, or I think, if, you, if, you, if you've done your reading, you know that when they finally spear Moby Dick, that the whole thing comes unraveled, that Ahab has to suddenly look at things differently, because all the prophecies, his whole way of looking at things, is in collapse, it just collapses. Um, so, and then we get to the end of the, the resolution. This is, remember, this is the classic action of Aristotle. A beginning problem, a complication, a crisis, a denouement, a resolution. And all of this, all of this is an affirmation of reason of reason at work, or as I've been saying all along, of the Logos. That there is this tremendous rationality to things in the world, that there is this meaning, that something's at work. How, how, did, how did Ishmael survive if God wasn't? The shark's mouths are closed, he's protected, he does everything he can to make it clear, something's watching over him, somebody's watching over him, or he could not survive the wreck the way he does. So. The whole plot indirectly is an affirmation of reason, and everything that Ishmael does affirms it, right? Chapter after chapter, you, you see what a wonderful mind he has. He's so supple in his mind. He's not rigid like Ahab. He's, he looks at things. He puts them next to each other. His heart is opening. Step by step, we saw it. Remember, my splintered heart was softening. At the, when, he, when he does the Armada chapter, he says, at the center of my soul was this tranquil peace, you know? And then in the, um, the Spermaceti uh, um, chapter, <laughs> I read that last week, didn't I? Didn't I read it? He's squeezing hands with everybody and looking into their faces with these dreamy eyes and says, why are we holding on to these acerbities anymore? Let's be friends and squish hands together forever. Um, not ad finitum. Um, he, he goes on and on. Um, you could, yeah, sorry, ad nauseum, yeah, sorry. Ad nauseum. Yeah, ad nauseum. Because you, you have this sense that he could go on like that forever. I mean, that, that he wants to, it reminds me of Peter when Peter says, let's stay here. You, know, you have a feeling that Ishmael would, I mean, and, and that's so interesting. Peter says, let's stay here. Is there any question that Ishmael wants to stay right where he is at that moment? I mean, he's in such peace. And, I mean, Peter didn't know. What a rude awakening. Peter has to go down. He's going to be crucified. So is Ishmael. So is Ishmael. He cannot stay there. The cross is, is waiting for all of us. Um, okay. Here's, here's the plot, just very quickly. And this, to me, is both leading towards and containing the crisis. Okay? So let me just lay this out. I'm going to just quickly go over these chapters. In the doubloon chapter, as you know, most of the characters go up to the mask to read it. We get all these different points of view on what it means. Chapter 100, the Pequod meets the Samuel Enderby, and it's in that chapter that Ahab meets the captain who lost his arm. And if you remember it, you remember how glib the man was. He just laughed everything off. He could not take it seriously. Um, nothing Ahab said could catch his attention. His, his, respo his response to the mystery of Moby Dick is to laugh it off. It reminds me a little bit of Stubb, whose, whose response to everything is to laugh it off. 
106 to 113 are those chapters dealing with Ahab's leg because remember when he leaves the Enderby, he twists his leg and he has to ask the carpenter to make a new one. And I'm going to read those chapters because there's a lot going on. I'm, that's where we're going in a minute. Um, so from this point on, from the doubloon section on, we're, we're concerned. Let, this is really important. If you watch the plot, I don't know that I ever realized. You guys are really bringing this home to me. I have to, re, I have to just say thank you deeply because putting it in this context has opened up this book for me in an amazing way. Um, from this point on, the chapters concern Ahab, largely. We're not getting Ishmael's meditations anymore. We start getting in Ahab's mind, his meditations, he's down below. Things that Ishmael would have had no way of knowing. And it more immediately involves Ahab. Ahab with the carpenter are, are important chapters. Ahab with Pip. Ahab with Starbuck. So it, during that whole section of chapters, we're entering into Ahab's interior and discovering sides of him that we hadn't seen earlier. And what we find is that there is this an amazingly good heart in this man. I'm going to put that out because it's going to become clear if it's not in a minute. Then we, then we have all those chapters dealing with natural disasters. The storms come and present all these problems to the ship and Ahab has to meet them. So during this, this sequence of chapters, we're moving to the crisis. That, um, and I, it seems to me the crisis, we come to the point of the crisis in the symphony chapter when Ahab and Starbuck are at the railing. Ahab lets a tear drop into the ocean and they have that very, very tender exchange. What happens after that are the chases. And we're, we're at the, the pitch of the crisis. But all of these chapters are leading up to it. And the reason the, the, chapter, the chase chapters are so much more intense is because we've gotten to know Ahab better. He had those tender exchanges with Pip, and he has that really tender moment with, with um, Starbuck. So all of those are drawing us into Ahab's heart so that the struggle becomes far more human for us. We're not allowed to look at this captain as just this bad guy. We're suddenly seeing that there are these human dimensions. So various aspects of his character are now coming into view. And in con we see them in conflict with each other. Um, so that's... And the gams. I'm going to wait on the gams because I really... I'm going to wait on the gams. You all got this. This is really important. The gams are really important. I'm, and I want to devote some time, but because of I want to get these things out. You all have this sheet on the gams, right? Just next time we meet, I want to look at that. As I told you before, if, if you look at each one of the gams in relationship to Moby Dick, the, here, let me put it this way. In some way... In some ways, the gams remind me of the Stations of the Cross. I know that's going to... This one painter did this extraordinary series of paintings on the station. I can't remember his name. But if you, if you follow the Stations of the Cross and watch all the people on the trail, some of them are weeping. Some of them are jeering. Some of them are laughing. Some of them are passing it off. How can it not be? Right? They, they don't all know what we know. Here's this strange rebel carrying a cross, marching across this path, and somebody is stupid enough to want to help him. A woman comes up and tries to wipe his face. There's got to be people there who, who cared nothing about it, who just laughed it off. 
There have to be people jeering and saying he deserved it, crucify him. There had to be people who didn't even know him who wept. What we're seeing in the GANs are various attitudes of business enterprises in their relation to the mystery at the center of this book. What is Moby Dick? How do we explain this wound and the nature of this, the metaphysical reality behind it? And what we learn from every one of those GAMs is, is we learn something about Moby Dick. More often, we learn more about the people by the way that they respond to us. Isn't that true of our own lives, that if we look at the way we respond to people, we very often find out more about ourselves? I think if we're looking correctly, as we should. So I, I want to do these, but not tonight, but just hold on to these. Next time we meet, we'll do the games, okay? Okay. Here's where we're going. I want to read, I want to read some of the lines from the chapters dealing with the carpenter and Pip and Ahab. Okay, those three, because they become interconnected. They're all intertwined in the last body of chapters, okay? I'm going to give this away now. It's a, it's a sort of setup because this is, because what, it, I want to, I want to, all of these things, the carpenter and Pip have significance mostly as they relate to Ahab, okay? So all of these last chapters really have to do with him. And we get these touching scenes between Pip and Ahab and these ironic scenes involving the carpenter and the blacksmith with Ahab. But they're all revealing of him, okay? And I want to read through some chapters just to flesh this out. But before I do, I've got to take a breath because this is, it's been an overwhelming sort of week for me. I want, to, I want to put something together for you guys and see what you think about it. As long as I've taught this work, I've, I've been troubled by Ahab and all these notions of predestination and the, the things that I will read tonight. Um, and let me, this is going to get anecdotal and personal for a minute, so bear with me just for a minute. I've never, I've never been able to pull those together in any way that was satisfactory to me. Um, I've, I've always looked at him as a tragic hero the way that I look at Othello or Macbeth or Lear. Or, and you know my, um, I wanted to spend some time, I'm not going to do it tonight, but you know that if we don't, if, if we don't, if we don't see the nobility in a tragic hero, then we will never feel the fall the way that we should. And I think it's harder for us as Americans today because I think we've lost a tragic view of man, truly, in our culture. I, I, don't, think, I don't think we have it. We, we have dumbed down, is the word that you hear, that we, we think so little of ourselves. And I, I really believe that Ahab's the prototype. He's, he's, he's prophetic in that way because what, what Melville's dealing with is something that's starting here that, that, that we've received that there are so many things about the modern view that are degrading to man, absolutely degrading. Darwin, Freud, to, to name the two top, that, that man is this awful thing. He's a product of forces. Um, he has no free will. Um, so 
Where do you get a tragic view? There's nothing tragic. If, if all those are true, there's nothing to lose. Yeah? So this is really important to me, and, and, it, and some things hit me um, the last couple of days that actually left me shaking. So let me try to put this together in some coherent way, because I haven't organized it. I haven't, I haven't put it down in writing, but let me give it to you. Um, and the, the thing with um, the Eucharist, I think, opened this for me. Because I, I grew up Greek Orthodox and took communion all the time. It was a, sac it was a sacrament. I never stood, I never understood as a boy what I just explained to you last week. When I came into the Catholic Church, I didn't understand it. And I can tell you, I'm, and I'm, I'm going to be really honest for a second here, I can remember 20 years ago in a church in California where we, where we were then, when they were going to withhold the wine for a period, I can't remember what was going on, I can remember kneeling down in a pew and almost weeping, because in the Orthodox Church you take the wine and the bread, Greek Orthodox Church, um, and felt so fierce about it that I wanted to go up on the altar when the, when the, um, the, uh, the Eucharistic ministers were receiving and receive. <laughs> I mean, how embarrassing would that have been for everybody? But I, the, the, the thought of not having the Eucharist absolutely undid me. I left the church, Greek Orthodox Church, um, and then when Suzanne and I had Amy, I, we went back. I knew then that I was already on my way to Catholicism. And we were at UD. It was a, I don't want to go into this. It's an amazing story. Thing after thing after thing after thing after thing. It's like the Red Sea opening. We're all pointing me to the church. I knew I would come in, but to become Catholic when you're in a Greek Orthodox family means or community means you leave you leave your community because you're Greek. It's like being Jewish or Turkish or you know, to, to become Catholic means you're you're not of the Greek community anymore. That's how closely allied I mean that's that's one of the problems with the ethnic stuff going on in our world. We came to UD and I can remember, I remember knowing that I was on the way but could not take the step and wanting to visit a Catholic mass and it was snowing. There was probably a half an inch snow on the ground. We used to go into Dallas when we were at UD and, and go to the Greek Orthodox Church there. I remember going to the priest and asking him since it was snowing if we couldn't receive at UD. <laughs> It's one of the big lies of my life. I just wanted, I wanted, I, mean, I wanted to be there. Could, but one of the things that struck me in, at UD was everybody took communion. In the Greek Orthodox Church, we were the only family. I mean, that's how much it meant to me. Nobody took communion. Maybe a half a dozen people. It has that Puritan sense of you have to, you know, you have to do all these fasting. and. Um, I'll never forget that. I mean, visiting being on campus and being a part, going to mass occasionally at UD and seeing everybody was receiving. That, that was a, an amazing moment. I mean, imagine that if you come from a place where practically nobody is, and then you see Indian, Mexican, Filipino, child, you know. In the Greek church, it's Greek. At UD, it was everybody. Here comes everybody. It was stunning. I remember when, when I walked into a Catholic church when I'd taken up this job, I was offered a job at a Catholic college. <laughs> That's before. And I remember going to Mass when we first, this was in California in our home when we went back to California and we walked into this parish. It wasn't Catholic yet. And they were playing, Here I Am, Lord. I wept. I broke down. And everybody was there, you know, Mexicans, Filipinos, 
This was not a Greek world, it was everybody. And I thought, this is God's home. This is where we all belong. Um, we went to this, we went to look in the Carolinas and we met this guy who was Presbyterian who could not answer this question about predestination. There's a woman at the wreck that I really like who was wearing a t-shirt advertising Calvin. I know Calvin. I've been, I mean, I've read him. I know about him. I've read stuff of his. I've known this since I've been teaching Moby Dick. I mean, I had to know history, so. I, in my mind, in my mind, I really thought Calvin was anachronistic. Nobody lived these things anymore. Who lives Calvin? She did. Um, I, I couldn't, this is a woman I really liked. My, 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 if, you read, if you read Faulkner's um, Light in August, you're gonna, Joe Christmas was born on Christmas Day. He gets adopted by a Calvinistic family. It's brutal. Um, whoring and the, the sins that you do are proof that you're among the damned. Light and August, I mean, I, partly I want to do that novel with you guys just so you can see Faulkner's treatment of this topic. Fundamentalist mindset in the South. Um, rigid, self-righteous, damning, black-white. Um, I like this woman. So I said, can we talk about religion? I said, would you mind? Because, I mean, that's what I do. We went, and I, I didn't want to get on religious terms. I wanted to do something that she that would keep it from being recited, so just on philosophic terms. If the soul's immortal, if you believe that, how can you believe that a soul can be damned before he's born? Would a good God do that? You know? It, she said, that's not my language, and it sort of threw her. She had to think about it, and so we, the conversations didn't go very far, they stopped it. I didn't, I didn't believe anybody lived Calvin anymore. She clearly does. Christopher, our middle son, married a girl whose parents belonged to a, a fundamentalist church. And she converted. They looked at her conversion as proof that she belonged to the Antichrist. They were Calvinistic. When she, when she was young, she told us the story, when she was in high school, she went through a period of depression. She went to her counselor. The counselor told her that she should that it was a question in my mind whether that wasn't proof that she was among the damned. She's a young teenager, hearing that from a counselor. Um, or, or I, when, I, when I had my knee operation about six, seven years ago, the guy, I love him dearly, still do, um, the guy who oversaw my um, the, the rehab, fundamentalist, I can't tell you how dear this guy is to me. I mean, a really dear, dear friend. And we had a faith. I mean, we really shared. He, I would get letters from him every once in a while, and then his son started coming into things. And very often when the Islam thing would come up, the letters I got got more and more black-white. And I found it harder and harder to say things to him because I would say things that, um, that clearly they disagreed with. Um, they were fundamentalist. Um, their, their picture of Islam is that anybody, practically anybody who's Islamic is um, anti-Christ. They're satanic. And at some point we stopped writing. I mean, it just, um, it was hard to carry on a conversation anymore because it had gotten intense because it went to the root of things. You know, weeks ago I, I introduced this to you guys. I remember talking about it because it has become such an important thing for me. If you grow up believing a certain thing, 
you grew up believing in Islam, if you grew up as a fundamentalist Catholic, or I mean a Catholic or a fundamentalist, how, how likely is it that you're going to be converted, if, particularly if you're comfortable in, in a comfortable world? I mean, conversions are sort of amazing if you think about them. How, try to convert in Islam. God, it's just... Um, so, how does God look at this? I mean, this is a good, merciful God. God knows all of this. If you've grown up in Islam, and you've, grown, and you've got a good family, and you're raised well, and you're, doing, and you're obeying the law, why in the world would you change? There's no reason for you not to believe you're a good person. Okay, sorry. So, that's been my experience of Calvin. I mean, intellectually, I know about it, but our daughter, our middle daughter, converted this woman who's a friend. And, um, oh, the Randy, the guy who saw me through the... <laughs> we found out that he and Kayla's parents belong to the same congregation. Kayla's their middle daughter. She's the one who grew up in this parent. I have no idea that, I mean, I knew that she was from a fundamentalist family, but I had no idea Calvin was in it. What I learned was that the, my friend who did the rehab and the parents were of the same congregation. They split up over a doctrinal issue. I mean, you hear that forever. Those congregational groups are constantly dividing. Um, and it was over, a, whatever it was, I don't know, but I think it was a Calvinistic issue because some of them held very strictly to those beliefs. Now, all of this has been sort of light for me until we got back to Moby Dick. Now, here's, here's what I'm going to suggest to you. Sorry for the ad nauseum, just <laughs> going, going on too much here. But here, I want you, I want you to, because I've never been able to, I've never been able to answer what's going on with Abe. Now, just stop and think for a minute. This New England community is fundamentally Calvinistic. Congregationalist, autonomous, but the tenets behind them are not Catholic, and I'm not saying that to discredit them, I'm saying I want to be emphatic about this. Their whole purpose of coming into being was to oppose Catholicism. That's, that was their understanding when they were in England. That's why they went to the Netherlands, that's why they came here. Um, to, to get away from this religious disorder and a, and a Europe that's breaking down that doesn't allow people to follow their own conscience. Okay? Put it, I mean, as solidly as I can. But it's fundamentally Calvinist. And they had to believe they were among the elect, and the fact that they came here would have been proof of that. Okay? Now, imagine this. Ahab's got all these beliefs about predestination, damnation, and, and evil. Here's one of the things I've, I've never been able to say it because I couldn't believe it, but now I believe it, and I don't think I don't think anybody holding a Calvinistic belief will allow this. I'm sure we would argue with each other or disagree. For Calvin to say that somebody is predestined to be damned insinuates an evil in God. Metaphysically, now how many people are going to go there to metaphysics? Okay? If parents get married and they have children, our belief has always been, in any, any Christian community, I think this is safe to say, I may be wrong, I mean, I may get called on this, but I think every Christian community believes in the immortality of the soul. We go on in the next life, yeah? What we do here matters. But if you believe in the immortality of the soul, 
And it only comes from God. Parents can't do that. We believe that when a couple of nights, we can produce the human part of it. But the divine part, the immortal part, comes from God, yes? If, if a soul is damned before he comes into this world, that is, he's evil, where does that evil come from? I'm going to go through these passages tonight. Every, every single one of them in Ahab's soul is fire begets fire. There's some, something beyond, the sorrows beyond. I'm going to read all these tonight. Where does that come from? Ahab's beliefs. Now, pitch, just for a second, picture this, because this hit me just like a lightning rod a couple of nights ago or last night. When we read Faulkner, Sound in the Fury, if you're all still around, um, when we read Sound of the Fury, the opening chapter of Sound of the Fury is through the eyes of an idiot. Nobody has ever done that in literature before. To, for me, Faulkner is one of the most democratic writers that's ever existed on this earth. Maybe even more so than Dante, I don't know. We get into the mind of an idiot. And it's going to be hard reading because we're in the mind of an idiot. But if you put it, to, you put it together, you'll see Faulkner's done an amazing thing to help us get through it. I'll wait till we get there. But we're in the mind of an idiot. Okay? Nobody's ever done that before. Fully in the mind of an idiot who's a part of a larger story. What if Melville reached a point in his life at some point and said, what would it be like to be in the mind of somebody who's damned? There it is. Makes me want to weep. Imagine somebody who's Calvinistic living at that time when you had to struggle with the question of whether, you're going to, whether you were among the damned or not. We don't struggle with it. God damn it. We don't struggle with it. We believe in free will. What Calvinist is going to struggle with it? If he's among the elect, he's going to be too busy going on with his life showing how good he is. But what if you're one of the ones who's damned? What do you do on this world? Look at every one of Ahab's struggle. Every one of them is, I will not let the gods do this to me. The evil that's seated there. He's defying everywhere. That there's something in him, him. So basically human wanting to recover a dignity in the face of all this ugly stuff around him. If you were Melville and said at some point, <clears throat> what's it like to be one of the damned? I can't put it any starker. That hit me the other day and it just shook me. Because if we look at Ahab that way, we're seeing a... The, remember, I said every tragedy is about some noble person falling in some way. If we don't feel that, if we don't see it, we're not reading tragedy well. So my, my suggestion to you is, remember, I asked this question, where did all these beliefs come from? Don't you feel them? I mean, He's struggling against, where did all this stuff come from? Where? It didn't come out of nowhere. He's a, he's a pro, and I've said this, I mean, I'm hitting you over that. This is America. This is us. This is part of our character. We grew up in this, this sense of wounds and wanting to get back. Melville was great enough, I mean, what an extraordinary man, that he would have wanted to go to the metaphysical roots of this and uncover it. Ahab is the embodiment of that, something in him that's human, that doesn't want this to happen, and, and as we see, cannot not let it happen. Now just hold on to that, okay? Because I'm going to read these passages now and, and ask you to hold on to them. But that's one of the thoughts that I would ask you to hold on to, is you look at the end of the book and watch Ahab with these struggles and listen to him. 
and ask yourself, where did these beliefs come from? If you read my piece at the end of the book, you'll know that towards the end of that piece that I, my claim is that, that Melville was exorcising Protestant demons. I really believe that. I don't think I ever saw the depth of it completely until a night or two ago. And then when that hit me, I thought, holy cow. <coughs> well, that, that concept kind of manifests itself in the conversation between Ahab and Sarah, doesn't it? Which, I mean, what are you thinking? Well, you know, they're at that, that moment, well, the period where they're on the deck and... You mean in the quarter deck early? No, no, toward the end the of the... In the symphony? Just before the yeah. choir. Yes, yeah. And you, you know, Starbucks suddenly sees Ahab in a different light and he tries to tell him it's not too late, it's not too right. late. We can still change right. the course and turn back and right. go home. And, and despite the, the sense that you get that Ahab believes that that might be a good idea, he can't bring himself to make no. the decision. No, there's no way. So if you're damned, then you figure... I mean, I'm just asking you, imagine what it must be like to grow up that way. It just, when that hit me, it just undid me. How does anybody live with that? So how do you know you're damned? Well, Let me not go into the dark. Let's just focus here, but just <laughs> hold on to that. I mean, that's a hard... I mean, the, the short answer to that is... The, the short answer is you, you wouldn't be struggling to overcome your sins and you wouldn't endure. Well, you go, you, the church has to be part of the elect. You, you, would, you, 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 would, you would convert to another religion. That's why I said earlier. I mean, what, how, what, because if you're, if you're among the elect, you, you can't resist it. I mean, if you are following those tenets, you, you cannot, not, it's going to happen to you will, whether you will it or not because God's will will not be overdone. So if you're not among the elect, you're, you're going to keep falling into sin and you won't do anything about it, and that will be proof. And if you jump to another religion, I would assume that would be evidence that... Anyway, hold on. Let's, let's look at a really okay? Here, I want to very, very quickly turn to the carpenter, page, chapter 107, page 539. I want to very quickly look at the carpenter and Pip... Page 540, he's describing the carpenter as this strange man who's not belonging to the mass of men, but doesn't belong to man alone either. That's how he opens the chapter. But he says in the middle of 540, for nothing was this man more remarkable than for a certain impersonal stolidity, as it were, impersonal, I say, or associated off into the surrounding infinite of things that it seemed one with the general solidity discernible in the whole visible world which while pauselessly active in, an uncount, in uncounted modes, still eternally holds at peace. He's fixed. He's not going to change. This is the, the carpenter. And, and remember, he's defined in terms of his ability to make mechanical things. So he's like an image of our, of our bodies, mechanical. I, gave, I suggested last time we met that he's like a, somebody who works with computers or technical things that... He's fixed in that mode. You know, that's the way he will stay. That it seemed one with the general solidity discernible in the whole visible world, which while pauselessly active in an uncount, in uncounted mode, still eternally holds its peace. And ignored you, though you dig foundations for cathedrals. Yet was this half-horrible stolidity in him, involving too, as it appeared, in all ramifying heartlessness. Yet it was oddly dashed at times with an odd crutch-like 
antediluvian, wheezing, humor, that he would try to be glib or flip sometimes or humorous, but for the most part he seemed not to have a heart, that he just mechanically went about his business. Page 541, the middle of the page, middle of that top paragraph, he was a pure manipulator. His ethos, his psyche, takes its identity from fixing things mechanically. That's what he does. It shaped who he is. Page 543. He goes to him to make the leg, and he says at the top of 543, well, man-maker, go down a few lines. What's Prometheus about there, the blacksmith, I mean? So the blacksmith and the, and the carpenter both tend to be seen in terms of the Promethean figure, who, if you know the Prometheus myth, was the creator of mankind, he used fire to give things to humans that, without which they couldn't have really fully developed as humans. Um, down below on 543, he talks about asking the man to make a complete body of himself, as if we could create our own image. Um, but he knows he can't. Um, the bottom of 544. Um, it is, man, look. Put thy live leg here in place where mine once was, so now here's only one distinct leg to the eye, yet two to the soul. He's asking if he puts the soul in place, will he feel it? Because the, the, the soul still hold, has a memory of the actual leg there when it's only a mechanical leg. It's not a real leg, so it's not a part of an organic being. It's a, it's a replacement part. Ahab and Ishmael through him is dealing with this whole question of what constitutes a human being? Can we make man physically? And the answer to that obviously is no because man has a soul. Now here's, um, now here's only one distinct leg to the eye yet two to the soul where thou feelest tingling life. There exactly then there um, to a hair do, do I. Is it a riddle the guy can't follow Ahab because he's Ahab's asking questions about the soul that sort of puzzle him. Um, there's more to read, and I'm going too quickly, but I want to, sorry, I want to cover this um, stuff as, um, as well as I can, because I want to get to Ahab. Turn to 561. He comes to the blacksmith. And remember, he, he wants to forge um, a harpoon that's baptized in the pagan's blood. And he pronounces that, um, he, he does a parody, he blasphemes the words that are pronounced over the baptism of the bottom, page 563. He's, putting, he's asking the blacksmiths to put the, the harpoon together and they get the, the spear part of it. And then he asks for the, the pagans, the, the harpooners, to offer their blood and they do and then he says at the bottom ego non baptizo te in nomini patris sed in nomini dio, diaboli um, I do not bapt or I do not baptize you in the name of the father but in the name of the devil so he commits himself to something demonic knowing it here at this point so the blacksmith and the and the carpenter are both men who are who confine themselves just this materialistic view of man, as if these parts are replaceable. One of the, um, turn back to page 5, 
543, yeah. There's something else here and I'm missing. God bless it. Um, on page 543 towards the bottom, he says, um, I, um, I do deem it now most meaning thing that that old Greek Prometheus who made men, they say, should have been a blacksmith and animated them with fire that, that they could just be produced. And I said this before. I mean, we know people today who are involved in AI, artificial intelligence, who believe that man is no more than his material products, that parts can be replaced. That it's very Cartesian that the, the, the sum of the whole is the sum of the parts. And if they are, they're replaceable. Aristotle believes that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, prior to it and greater, that there's something more that makes it up. There's a nature to things. Um, they say should have been a blacksmith and animated them with fire. For, for what's made in fire must properly belong to fire. And so hell's probable. Where did, I mean, this is a happy, where did fire come from? If it, if it didn't have an origin, metaphysical origin, as fire. I mean, this is implicitly saying that the origins of hell are, by the way, the one person I forgot, I met a kid at the gym that I really like. He's writing a book and I'm um, talking every once in a while, he'll we'll, tell me what he's doing and I was, um, I can't remember what came up, um, but I was trying to make the distinction between evil as a positive thing and evil as a privation because I believe, we believe that evil is a privation. If good and evil are co-eternal, like the Zoroastrians believe, or the Manichaeans in some ways, if good and evil are co-eternal, there's no reason not to choose evil. There's no way to get out of that because they're eternal. Okay? We believe that evil is not a positive, it's a privation. God is all good, there was no evil coexisting with This is so important, really so important. Good and evil is eternal, is a truncated philosophy. It doesn't make sense. There's no reason not to choose evil if it is. We believe that God is all good. There was nothing else but him. There was no evil. Evil is a privation. It's a separation. It's a losing being. For Calvin to say man was predestined to damnation is to seat evil in God. So it's no wonder that Ahab keeps having these figures of some metaphysical source to all these things. Every one of his images, like the fire image here, is another one of those instances. Um, we'll come to another one in just a second. Um, we looked at the, at the Pip episode when he saw the treadle in the loom, right? And, and we talked about that for a minute. And I want to go back to Pip for just a second. Think I was suggesting that Pip may be a double, an image. I really want to press this a little bit here. I may be wrong on this, but why does he come in now? This, 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 um, I think it's important to see Pip as um, innocent and alone and helpless and abandoned. And in that sense, he may be an image of the inherent goodness in everybody that they're lost, that they've lost sight of. If you're Calvinistic, what does it mean to have an inherent good? It doesn't exist. Um, Pip images some inherent good. He has a mystical vision there at the bottom of the sea. He sees God on the treadle. All of the men speak of him as having a wisdom 
that madmen have, that the mystics have when they've seen things that other men can't, they can't use their, wis their, their reason to relate to. Turn to page 553. This is when Queequeg makes his coffin because he thinks he's going to die, remember? In the middle of 553, Pip takes his hand. While he's in the coffin, he thinks he's dying. Poor rover, we never have done with all this weary roving. Where go ye now? But if the currents carry to those sweet antidelis where the beaches are only beat with water lilies, will you do me one little errand for me? Seek out one Pip who's now been missing long. I think he's in those far Antilles. If you find him, then comfort him. This is touching. How capable are any of these men of comforting Pip? The only one is Ahab. The only one. Seek out one Pip who's been missing long. I think he's in those fair Antilles. If you find him, then comfort him. For he must be very sad. For look, he's left his tambourine behind. I found it. Ring-a-ding-ding. Dig or stig. Now, quick, quick, die. And I'll beat your dying march. Um, Starbuck looks at this and he says, where learned he that but there? Um, and he just said in the sentence for, he vouches of our heavenly homes. Where did Pip get this except in these heavenly homes? That he seems to be speaking a knowledge that's divine. That's Starbuck trying to make sense. <clears throat> Pip continues, 554. From two and two, let's make a general of him. Ho, oh, where's his harpoon? Lay it across here. He wants to dignify him. Like a, sending him off to the next world. He wants to give. Because he's done well. Lay it across. Rig-a-dig, dig, dig. Huzzah. Oh, for a gamecock now to sit upon his head and crow. He wants to do everything he can to make this ceremonious. Queequeg dies game, mind you. Queequeg dies game. Take you good heed of that. Queequeg dies game. I say game, game, game. But base little Pip. Queequeg was game. He didn't back away from anything. Pip jumped. But base little Pip, he died a coward, died all in a shiver, out upon Pip, out upon, hark ye, if you find Pip, tell all about the Antilles, he's a runaway, a coward, a coward, a coward, tell him he jumped from the whaleboat, I never beat my tambourine over base Pip and haul him general, if he were once again dying here, no shame upon all cowards, shame, where does that come from, that ugly shaming because of his cowardice, give me the root of that. I mean, if this isn't Calvinistic, I don't know what it is. You've got this, what we've got in Pip is what we would call a dissociated person. He doesn't, he doesn't identify with himself. He wants somebody to go find him. He, and, and he's lost himself because he was a coward. And he wants to shame him. He's not fit to be there. God, just makes my heart break now. The more I look at what's going on here. No, no, shame upon all cowards, shame upon them. Let them go down, let them go down like Pip that jumped from a whale. That is, he proved what a failure he is. Peter failed Christ. Christ knew he would or he wouldn't have. Um. Okay, quick. Um, we've done the quarter deck. I don't want to go back there, but on page 208, if you, I'd, what I'd like to do is ask you guys to go back to these pages. I'm not going to do it now. That's that section on the quarter deck where, where Ahab says, I don't care what it is, whether it's agent or principal, I will strike through that mask. Maybe I better look up. 208. He says, hark ye again, all visible objects, man, are but pasteboard masks. 
this is incredible, incredible. He's got the genius to understand that you cannot explain material causes by themselves. Every material cause has to have a cause before it. So he knows there's something beyond. How do you explain evil in the world unless it's from an evil God? All visible objects are but pasteboard maps, but in each event, in the living act, the undoubted deed, there's some unknown but still reasoning thing puts force that molding of its features from behind the unreasoning, unreasoning mask. There's no reason in back that. If man will strike, strike through the mask. How can the, prin- the prisoner reach outside except by thrusting through the wall? Sometimes I think there's not behind, but tis enough. He tasks me, he heaps me. I see in him outrageous strength with unscrutable malice seeming it. That inscrutable thing is chiefly what I hate and be the white whale agent or be in principle. I will wreck that hate upon him. Talk not to me of blasphemy. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. Say what you want. He's speaking from some dignity. There's something human in him saying, you know, I'll strike at the sun if he insults me. Take a look at um, um, the following 2.13. This is in the very next... um, 2.13, they think me mad, Starbuck does, but I'm demoniac. I am madness madman, that wild, that wild madness that's only calm to comprehend itself. The prophecy was that I should be dismembered. I, I, I lost this leg, I now prophesy that I will dismember my dismemberer. Whatever you say, he, he's got a sense that something's predetermined. And something in him is in revolt against it. He's going to dismember that. Whatever we say about this guy, he's, it's like some human dignity is trying to reassert itself against these beliefs. Now then, be the prophet and the um, fulfiller one. Go down. Take some one of your own size. Don't pommel me. No, you've knocked me down and I am up again. But you have run and hidden. Come forth from behind your cotton bags. I have no gun to reach you. Come, able, able, able. Ahab's compliments to you. Come and see if you can swerve me. Swerve me? You cannot swerve me, else you swerve yourselves. Man has um, has ye there. Swerve me? The path to my fixed purpose is laid with iron rails whereon my soul is grooved to run. That picks up what you were saying. Um, 106, 536, quick. This is one of the most important passages, I think, in the whole thing, because it's here on page 537, where he makes the case that grief and sadness is greater than joy. If you trace every grief back, it will go back to some ultimate grief before it, and that's greater than any joy. Where does that come from? That's not our belief. But if you grow up believing, things are predestined. And um, He says at the bottom of 536, um, so equally with every felicity, all miserable events do naturally beget their like. Yea, more than, more than equally, thought Ahab, since both the ancestry and, and posterity of grief go farther than the ancestry and prodestry of joy. Some darkness goes back farther than joy. Who could say that unless he thought in some way he was damned? I mean, I can't conceive it. 
I can make no sense of this otherwise. For not to hint of this, that is an inference from certain canonic teachings. He will go on. He, he talks about it at length. For thought Ahab, while even the highest eternal felicities ever have a certain and signifying pettiness lurking in them, but at bottom all heart woes a mystic significance, and in some men's an archangelic grandeur, Satan. So do their diligent tracings out not belie the obvious deduction to trail the genealogy of these high mortal miseries carries as a, at last among the sourceless primogenitors of the gods, so that in the face of all the glad haymaking suns and soft cymbeline round harvest moons, we must needs give in to this, that the gods themselves are not forever glad. The ineffaceable sad birthmark in the brow of man is but a stamp of sorrow in the signers. Where does that come from? Um, I, we talked about the quadrant, the candles, the needle, the log in the line. Um, turn to 618. Sorry, I've, I've got to rush through this because we've got to get out of here. Um, this is the... Um, What's the... Six, 618. It's the symphony that Fred had mentioned. There are other chapters, I, I think when we come back after this break, I'll, I'll go back to some of them, but um, those are some of the more important ones. Um, it begins with this beautiful, calm day. Melville describes it in terms of a, um, the, the, the masculine sea and the feminine heavens, that there's a mating, it's implicitly sexual. Um, and in the middle of 619, he looks over into the calm of the ocean. It says, from beneath his slouch hat, Ahab dropped a tear into the sea. Or did all the Pacific contain such wealth as that one we drop? Remember, St. Thomas said, man is the most extraordinary thing in all creation, that the whole universe is not equal, cannot equal the worth of a human soul. Shakespeare shows that in Anthony Cleopatra. It's one of, one of the most beautiful images in poetry. She sees Anthony larger than the universe. Um, if that's true, how, how can it not be? One drop from this man has got to be greater than the entire ocean coming from him. Starbucks sees it and is touched by it. And, um, um, on page 620, um, Ahab says to him, O Starbuck, but do I look very old, so very old, I feel deadly faint. He, he says he's left his wife a widow, that he's never been home. He spent his whole life away from her. He's regretting it. Um, he's overcome with it. Do I look very, very old, Starbuck? I feel deadly faint, bowed and humped, as though I were Adam, staggering beneath the piled centuries since paradise. God, 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 crack my heart, starve, stay my brain. Mockery, mockery, bitter biting, mockery of, of gray hairs. Have I lived enough joy to wear ye and seem and feel this, uh, this intolerable old? He's warm. I mean, he's off. He's exhausted. Spiritually, he's exhausted. Close. Stand close to me, Starbuck. Let me look into a human eye. It is better than to gaze into a sea or sky, better than to gaze upon God. By the green land and the bright hearthstone, this is the magic glass man. I see my wife and my child in thine eye. No, no, stay on board, on board. Lower not when I do. When branded Ahab gives chase to Moby Dick, that hazard shall not be thine. He's sparing him. He wants to save him. He doesn't want him to die. 
Oh, my captain, oh, my captain. Those, are, those words are picked up in movies. I mean, I don't know if you've seen them, but you hear that repeated, oh, my captain, my captain, that's Starbuck. He, he tries to appeal to him again to say, um, come back. Um, and um, in the middle of 621, is Ahab, Ahab, is it I, God, or who that lifts this arm? Does he have free will or not? There's not a question, not a metaphysical question that this man doesn't deal with. Um, we've got to stop. There's one. There's other lines to read here, but um, what I'd like to leave you with is the question that I put earlier: Where does Ahab get these beliefs? If 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 you were if you were raised in a in a Calvinistic community, um, even if you reached a point where people no longer believe those or live them as immediately as they did, you know, 100 years earlier, because we're in mid 19th century now. This is 1850. If we're in the early 1800s, we're 100 years away, 150 years away from the founding. If you were raised with these beliefs, and you were among the elect, but even if you were among the elect but struggling with the question of whether you were damned, what, how, how would you deal with that? How could you possibly know? At a, at a meta, at a, I mean, to go to a metaphysical level, this entire quest of Ahab's is dealing with a root question that's at the founding of America. It's in us. Even if we're not Calvin, this is part of who we are. Um, take a look at what Ahab's doing. Um, look at his nobility. Picture him as a man, what he's struggling with. Where did these beliefs come from? Um, how do we look at the way he's trying to answer them? You know, it's a tragic hero. He's he's going to die at the end. See why you would get atheism and agnosticism. Right. Well, you have to look at the way Melville grew up himself. In the, when yes. we say, "How did Ahab grow up?" It's Melville who's writing this. How did Melville grow up? Yeah. That's where this story comes from. Well, remember, there's always, in the really great writers, there's something universal, because Shakespeare grew up in an England that was divided, but Shakespeare wrote, wrote plays on every major regime, and in an effort to do justice to that regime, um, even though it was very different from his own, good writers managed to somehow step back and still, remember the cave, so they, they bring something from outside the cave back in. I understand that. But I also know that in his autobiography, it said that he knew the Old and New Testament um, in a feverish way. Yeah, yeah. You know, he knew it. Yes, yes. That gave him a distinct advantage of writing. 